you to turn this morning to Ephesians chapter 5. Last Sunday we made progress in our study of the truth summarized in the catechism morning and evening. And this Sunday morning and evening I like to look at marriage, God's word to husbands this morning, God's word to wives this evening. I did not plan it as a series in honor of John and Deborah, but the Lord is sovereign and I thought it was high time that we review again God's word concerning marriage as Satan, the world, and our own sinful natures are always warring against it. It's good for us to remember the blessing of walking in God's ways. Ephesians chapter 5, I'd like to read the whole chapter, God's holy word. Therefore be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love. As Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you, as is fitting for the saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light." For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore he says, Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, And Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in fear of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church, and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. 
He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you, in particular, so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. That is God's word. Let's bow in prayer and ask for his blessing upon the preaching of it. Heavenly Father, you have not left us in the darkness, but you've called us into the light. And now we pray that your light, your word read and proclaimed, would be a lamp to our feet. Guide, Lord, our ways, our thinking, our living. Make us doers of your word. Deliver us through your word from the deceit of Satan and this world. And transform us, we pray. May we even now find out what pleases our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it's a joy, brothers and sisters, to think about marriage, because marriage is a tremendous gift. It's a gift of God. It's a a gracious gift of our Creator, and it's a gracious gift of God, our Redeemer, who has restored marriage to us and us to marriage. The Apostle writes here in Ephesians 5, to those who are God's dearly loved children, to God's dearly loved children, he, he loves to lavish gifts upon his people. And yet the apostles reminding the Ephesian Christians that that they are are separated from the world. They're a holy people to God. They're they're different than the rebellion that's that's all around them. They live in a world of darkness. It's very evident to us as well this morning. Our culture has, has profaned and desecrated the gift of marriage in every way conceivable. But the Apostle says that as you live in the darkness, don't fellowship with the darkness, but live as children of the light and find out what pleases the Lord. That's how you're to live. He says you are to walk circumspectly. You are to to walk very carefully, redeeming the time in these evil days. There's nothing casual about marriage. It's a glorious gift, but it's not a frivolous gift. If there's something we ought to walk circumspectly about, ought to be very, very careful with, it's... It's marriage. And more and more, the believer is being distinguished from the unbeliever precisely by marriage, right? This is becoming the mark of the Christian. That Christians get married, unbelievers often don't. Christians stay married, unbelievers often don't. Christians have fruitful marriages, partnerships of love, unbelievers often don't. And more and more, the world's beginning to notice that the Christian has something. The world can say it's just a social construct, it's just one relationship, one, one form of relationship man's invented. But as they look at husband and wife, Christian husband and wife together, they know better. They know better. There's nothing like it on earth, the Christian marriage. This morning we want to consider, and tonight too, God's will for us concerning marriage. It's a, it's a word not just for those who are married, but for those who hope to be married. It's a word for all of the churches. We pray for marriages and encourage them. It's a word for all of us because, because the marriage, the Christian marriage, magnifies the relationship between Christ and his church. The more we learn about marriage, the more we learn about our Savior and his love for us. So let's consider this morning then 
the instruction of God for husbands, husbands are called to do one thing, to love their wives, to love their wives. But that love is to have a certain character. First of all, it's to be a committed love, a a committed love, a covenantal love, a, a bond that will not be broken. And then it's to be a costly love. It's the love of self-sacrifice. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And thirdly, it's to be a caring love, a nourishing and cherishing love, a love of tenderness and affection, a caring love. So let's consider that this morning. First of all, God calls Christian husbands to a committed love. When he says, husbands, love your wives in verse 24, the word love by itself is is not so utterly unique. We're called to love our neighbors, to love our enemies, but but love in the Bible also knows narrowing circles. We're all called to love the world, love even our enemies, but then we're called in the Bible to do something special for the household of faith, and we love each other in the church in an even deeper way. And then within that church, and remember this is the same letter that we considered in connection with the communion of the saints chapter four this whole letter is about the unity of the church the the new humanity that christ is bringing the whole letter is about this unity and now we learn that something that serves the unity of this church is an even tighter circle the circle of husband and wife and so a husband is called now in a special way to love one particular woman namely his wife. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. Christ loved the church. We know that God has a mercy towards all of creation, but Christ has loved his church, and he gave himself for her. Jesus Jesus on the cross did didn't die for every single person in the world indiscriminately, even of those who will hate him forever. But we confess what we call sometimes limited atonement, or better put, particular redemption, that Christ gave his life for the church, for precisely those the Father had given him, the ones he will gather and who will spend eternity with them. He gave his life for his bride, the church. And now the Christian marriage is to reflect that. A Christian husband is to have a very particular love, a very exclusive love for one woman, his wife. The apostle says it again at the end of the section, verse 33. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself. What's the reason for that? Get all kinds of crazy talk these days about other relationships, right? I guess it's been around since the beginning, polygamy and polyamorous relationships now. People are trying to invent, can we have two man, men with one woman or three women, women with one man? Or, or how can we conceive of this? Certainly we can reconstruct this. But the Apostle Paul in this passage quotes from Genesis. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And that proclamation by God the Holy Spirit comes on the heels of what? God creating out of man a woman, bringing the woman to the man, and the man now, having surveyed all the animals and found no creature like him, now sings with delirious delight. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman, for she was taken out of man. God creates one woman 
for the one man. And then comes the words, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. God has created in marriage a bond that's closer than anything else among human relationships upon earth. It's closer even than the bond between parents and children. And God has so ordered this way that that a man should leave his father and mother, cling to his wife in covenantal commitment, and become one with her. Now, Again, that's under attack. There are many who don't want to leave home. They don't want to take on the responsibility of, of providing for a family. There's many who want to have the one flesh relationship of, of marital intimacy without the clinging together, without staying together. But the order of God's word was plain. Leave father and mother, cleave to the wife, become one. And in that order, it's a bond. Lifelong blonde. Remember the indictment that God brought through the prophet Malachi when he told his people, you, you come to my altar and you weep all over and stuff, but I don't accept your offerings. And you say, well, why not? And the answer is because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you've dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your wife By covenant. By covenant. The covenant is a relationship of promise. God has covenanted to be our God. He has promised. He has taken an oath that he will be our God. And he's faithful to that. The marriage covenant is a replica of that. When a man says to a woman, I will be yours till I die or you die. So don't be disloyal to your wife, God says. The Lord was standing there at your wedding day, and now the Lord's watching you. And he's not watching you as one who, who's hoping you fall. No, that's, that's Satan. But God is watching you as your father, who is, who is hoping to see you stand, and in fact, wants you to stand, and wants to give you the grace to stand. And so the Lord calls each husband to love his own wife, to love her exclusively. And what does that mean? Well, it means, number one, Stop looking at other women. That's what it means. Stop taking pleasure in anyone who's not your wife. I think we're going to need a lot more Christian chiropractors for all the whiplash of Christian men who have to keep turning their eyes away as as the images are just nonstop, the billboards and the screens, and it's everywhere. And a Christian man has to be in the discipline of turning away and turning away and turning away. It's not only images on the screen, it's people too, in the office or at the workplace. I will not find my pleasure in one who's not my wife. Marriage is a sacred garden and we are to tend it and guard it, doing a better job than Adam did who allowed the serpent in. We are to guard the sacred marriage ground and allow no intruder, no third party, This is an exclusive bond of husband and wife. But it's not only a bond of exclusivity, it's a bond of longevity. It's a a love that's to stick with it to the end. Love, marriage love, is not not infatuation, it's not mere emotion. 
It's not simply a guy saying, well, you know, she's so hot, I, I can't wait to be married. And then 10 years later, she says she, she's not so hot. Now I, I maybe don't love her anymore. No, that's not, that's not the marriage bond. Love is not a feeling. Love is a commitment. A commitment. In God's grace, we rejoice that when we are faithful to God, obedient to his word, God restores feelings. But marriage is, first of all, a commitment. Founded on a covenantal oath before God. So if you choose to get married, then you are choosing to say, I'm going to love this woman no matter what. I'm going to love her to, to the end. I mean, that's the way Christ has loved us. Aren't we glad that Christ doesn't look upon us each morning and say, my, what a mess. I'm not sure I want to love these people anymore. But he, he sticks with us. And a wife is entitled to that assurance, and she needs it, to be secure in her husband's love. It should be the husband's goal to leave his wife no doubt whatsoever that he is mine, he is mine to the end. Ray Ortland, in a little book on marriage, talks about the respect a husband needs as he faces his task in the world and he has doubts about failure. He needs his wife to be that encourager and to give him that respect. But he speaks of how the wife, oriented not like a man towards a task in the world, but oriented towards her husband as his stand next to, his helper, his companion, she needs the assurance of love. He writes these words. Let me read this quote. It's a little bit long. He says, for the husband, remember that God made Eve from Adam, for Adam, as his dear partner in life, to help him follow the divine call. But now in our broken world of today, deep in the heart of every wife is the self-doubt that wonders, do I please him? Am I the one he dreamed of and longed for? Will he love me to the end? Am I safe with this man I married? Will he cast me off? Even if we go the distance, will he get tired of me? A wise husband will understand that that uncertainty, that question is way down deep in his wife's heart, and he will spend his life speaking into it, gently and tenderly communicating to her in many ways. Darling, you are the one I want. I cherish you. I rejoice over you as no other. The thought of living without you is horrible to me. I love the thought of growing old together with you, hand in hand, all the way. I will hold you close to my heart until my dying day. A wise husband prizes and praises his wife above all others. That is why the word love is used. I don't know if all women would describe it as doubt, but there's certainly something there, isn't there, that I trust every woman would acknowledge that she flourishes in the context of certainty of assurance. And so a husband should do all he can. Not be the husband who said, well, you know, I told you I loved you when we got married. Isn't that good enough? No. Be like, be like your Savior who lavishes you with word upon word and page upon page and sermon upon sermon of saying, I love you and I will be faithful to you, my bride. So say it to your bride. Each time... 
we look aside from our wives to steal a glance at another woman, we take aim at the marriage covenant, and we, if marital happiness is a glass full, each time we turn aside to look elsewhere, we, we pour out a little bit of the happiness for the marriage we have or the marriage we hope to have someday. When we look aside, we pour it out. We, we are warring against ourselves. We should look at it that way. Men, every glance placed elsewhere has in some way robbed your marriage of happiness. Look to the one woman God has given to you and pray to Christ that he'll show us the joy of commitment. God is not a dreary God. No one forced God into marriage. I read about a man who was angry all his marriage because he got married only because his mom wanted him to. I can tell you God didn't get married because we talked him into it. God, out of his love, chose. And he's not sad about his choice. And so God in Christ gives us grace not to be sad about our choice, but to rejoice that I am committed. It's not a ball and a chain. It's a blessing from heaven. I am a committed man. There's a joy in the covenant. There's a joy in the covenant that can't be found in the frivolous, fornicating, deserting behavior of Satan's supposed freedom. There's a joy in commitment. Where we fail the commitment, let us repent quickly and turn back. For the Lord is good. So it's a committed love. Secondly, it's a costly love. It's a costly love. Husbands are called to love just as Christ also loved the church. And how did he do that? He gave himself for her. Love is that selfless self-giving. It's that surrender of my desires or my comforts. It's the sacrifice of my life for another. And when his husband loves a a wife that way, by the way, then what we hear about tonight, the Lord willing, about the submission of a wife, it's made a joy then. Because, you know, the church submits to Christ not saying, oh, this is such a dreary thing. No, we love to submit to Christ because he's always thinking about our good. And if a wife is assured her husband is always concerned for her best, then following him should be a delight. Christ's love for us was no mere sentiment. It wasn't just words or feelings. It was action and deeds. And his deeds were not meaningless deeds, but they corresponded to the very needs that we have. It's a silly husband who says, well, I'm going to show my wife I love her, so I'm going to go on a fishing marathon for the next 48 hours. Then she might say, well, how does that show me that you love me? Sounds like that's something you want to do. Christ loved us wisely and intelligently and purposefully. He saw our need. He saw our miserable, desperate condition. He saw what had to be done. Sinners had to be restored to the living God to escape eternal death and have eternal life. And seeing the need, then he substituted himself, his life on the cross, his death, so that we could have joy in the Lord and salvation. That's how a husband's to love his wife with a meaningful self-sacrifice. We read that he loved his wife. 
the bride, the church, and he gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with a washing of water by the word. Christ died to make us clean before God. Speaks of the washing of water by the word. The washing of water is probably a reference to baptism. Not that the water of baptism itself takes away any sin, but it points to the promised washing in Christ. And it's a washing by the word, not just because in baptism we use a baptismal formula into the name of Father, Son, and Spirit, but the word is the whole of Scripture that tells us what baptism means. And as, as the word of Christ is poured over us and poured into us, the promises of God, they, they wash us, they cleanse us. And all of this towards that glorious goal. What's Christ's great goal? That, that he can get this woman cleaned off and shove her out? His great goal is to wash his church. That verse 27, he might present her to himself one day, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Christ's entire working of love is all aimed that we should be with him forever in glory. Closer to him than we've ever been before. What a wonderful thing. Christ is working towards and praying towards. What a high and exalted love. And at what great cost. What unimaginable pain. Grief. He was cast out so we could be brought in. He did this for us on that bloody cross. And when the Christian husband then contemplates this love of the Lord Jesus as his model, then he notices that this costly love is not a love for one who is lovely. You know, in that sense, we Christian husbands get our wives in a lot better condition than Christ found us when he loved us. Right? God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were rebels and God-haters... He loved us realistically, not because we were so attractive and lovely. But what a blessing that we get to marry a woman who knows the Lord, who's been transformed, who is a beautiful creation. And yet love is not to be a blind love, but a realistic love. Pity the husband who thinks that as soon as he finds some blemish on his wife, there were some, the rabbis who taught this, as I recall, that even for the discovery of some blemish, even a mole, a husband had the right to divorce his wife. What diabolical nonsense. To love your wife as one who's like you, an imperfect sinner. Not as if you got taken on a car deal. Made a bad purchase and now you're filled with buyer's remorse. I drove the pickup home that I bought. I was very proud to tell my neighbor I'd discovered one dent on it and had got another 400 bucks off the price. And then he said, yeah, and there's two more dents right there, which I hadn't seen. Oh, is that how we deal with our wife? Any discovery of any weakness, an excuse not to love? By no means. Christian husband is to love his wife as she is and is to love her 
unto who God wants her to be. Got that from off of some church's uh, website. There was a good little word, I think. It said something like, we, we love people where they are and we love them unto where Christ wants them to be. Well, that's how a husband's to love his wife. Love her for who she is and love her in such a way that she becomes what Christ would have her to be. There's a great difference between lust and love. You young people, young adults, this has to be understood that lust and love are not the same thing. The world tells you that this is love, but it's really lust. And the difference between lust and love is quite simple. Lust takes, love gives. Lust looks at her and says, what can she give me? What can I take from her? Love looks at her and says, what can I give to her? How can I be a blessing to her? Now, lust is never fulfilled. Lust is never fulfilled. Lust is bloodshot eyes, always surveying and looking for another victim to rob the life from. Love finds fulfillment. Marriage is not the legitimizing of lust. Marriage is not a license that covers over lust. Now, I got married, so now I can treat her the same way I would have when we were unmarried, but, but now it's fine. No. You know, pornography is the school of marriage deconstruction. And men who are in the throes of pornography and then think, I'll get married and I'll be fine, discover it's not. If they've been dealing with women in this way of lust, taking, and now they intermarriage and think it fixes everything, it doesn't, they're just going to use their wife now. Lust and love are not the same thing. Love rejoices in giving and surrendering, and sacrificing, and intelligently, and purposefully seeking what's the best thing for the woman God has given to me. And in that way, showing a wife who the Lord Jesus is every day. John Bunyan, the author of the Pilgrim's Progress, says something to the effect, let every husband be such a husband to his believing wife that she's able to say, God has given me not only a husband, but a husband who preaches to me the behavior of Christ towards his church every day. He shows me Jesus. Tonight we hear that wives are called to yield to their husband's leadership, but this morning we hear that husbands are called to yield to their wife's needs and to serve them. If marriage is not costing you anything, dear brother, then you're not loving your wife. Just because your wife hasn't brought it up for years... Well, it may be that she got her head bit off the first time you brought it up or she got tired of bringing it up. But it doesn't mean that there's not a place for you to sacrifice. And we like to think about laying down our lives in some dramatic way, Hollywood style, jumping in front of a bullet. But the reality is that we should be prepared to lay down our lives at a moment's notice for our wife. We're actually called to a love that's to be present every day and continual self-sacrifice. What does that look like? We could, of course, elaborate all day on that, right? As we sat around as men, or better if we listen to the wives, 
but I'll bring up a few simply by way of illustrations. Number one, patience. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love suffers long. Love is not easily irritated or provoked. Love bears with weakness. Love is patient and listening to one's wife. Communication is not a small thing in marriage. Love listens. Number two, prayer. Love prays for one's wife. Sacrifices time to bow down before God and present our wives to the Lord, knowing that the Lord's mercies is what she needs more than anything else. Number three, presence. Presence. If you're taking notes, how did you spell that? Sometimes we husbands ought to buy better presents, but I suppose many wives would prefer a better presence of their husband, like the invalid girl whose mom called up on her birthday to ask what she would like for her birthday, and she said, I don't want anything, I want you. That our presence with our wives is to be a speaking presence. Wives are usually better communicators, but we husbands are to labor to be like the Lord Jesus, who is rich in words, so we should study to have words to speak, willing to express to our wives the truth and ourselves, because by words we give ourselves. Number four, purchases. Love spends money in a way that puts one's wife first. If our garage is full of the latest tools and gadgets, but our wife's kitchen is quite meager, then maybe we're not spending well. Or if we say, well, I tell my wife to spend whatever she wants to, maybe we haven't recognized that she's actually more burdened about the finances than we are. And so by us spending, we're robbing her because she won't spend. Number five, pleasure. Love seeks the pleasure for another, the cost to oneself. Throughout the whole of life, the question is, do I put her pleasure first? Number six, pursuits. Your wife, just like you, is made for great things. Are you leading your wife in a pursuit of great things, the kingdom of Jesus Christ? If you're leading her in simply a life of luxury and convenience and self-indulgence, then you're not leading her in a happy way. Satan can offer all of that. True happiness is found in serving the kingdom of Jesus And one of the ways that God often grants women to serve him is in the bearing of children. He doesn't always give all the children we would like. But God has designed women to bear children. I spoke to a young man years ago who had been married for some years and was explaining that he would like to have a child in another year or two from now, even though he expressed that his wife was not real happy about this. And I had to explain to him that he was depriving his wife of her calling. A noble calling. Number seven, I'll quit with this, purification. Which is really the most textually based one, I suppose. Purification. Christ died to cleanse his wife. And so... If we look upon our wives as belonging, first of all, to Jesus who died to cleanse, that is to give a clean record, but I think also to purify the heart, then the calling of a Christian husband is to also wash his wife with the word. As one of my friends says, our, our duty as husbands in doing that, washing our wives is, is not 
the pressure washer applied to the front porch, but it's the idea of a gentle bath. We are to speak words to our wives, to cover them with the word. And we can ask ourselves what kind of atmosphere we bring to the home. As husbands, is it an atmosphere of grumbling, complaining, irritation? Or do we bring to our homes the atmosphere of gratitude to God? These are the kinds of ways in which husbands are called to die to themselves and to love their wives. And so it's far more than, as in the parable of the talents, the man who buries his talent in the ground. Christ will not be satisfied on the day of his coming when he says, what did you do with the marriage I gave you if all you say is, well, I didn't get divorced? That's not sufficient. Christ says, I gave you a wife. Did you cultivate the garden? Did you love her unto what I want her to be? Did you speak the word to her? Did you cherish her? So the calling is a costly love, but the elephant in the room is me and my self-centeredness. And so the only way to, to love with a costly love is to know Christ and his costly love for us. To find in him our strength, the grace, the power to lay down our lives and to follow after him. To meditate upon the reality of what he's done. And to pray that he would grant that to us also. He says, so great is that love of Christ, so expansive his sacrifice that he has loved us and forgiven us. And he's given to us then his spirit who teaches us even to forgive as we've been forgiven. Finally this morning, this love which is a committed love and a costly love, is to be a caring love. Verse 28, a caring love. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now the apostle is not just saying you should love your wife as you love your body. He's saying you should love your wife because she is your body. Because he goes on to say about us in Christ, verse 30, that we are members of of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And then he speaks of the husband and wife who become one. Marriage is the making of two into one. Not that a wife loses her personality and is swallowed up by her husband, but that God so joins them together that when a husband looks at his wife, he should be thinking, this is part of me. And the apostle says, no one ever hated his own flesh. He nourishes and cherishes it. And we do, men, we do. Though we may not like to admit it, we nourish and cherish our own flesh. Maybe not in all the ways our wives wish we did. Not always as attentive to our bodies in all the ways they might prefer, but we're pretty attentive to our bodies. We know when we're hungry. We know when our finger hurts and we coddle it. So he says, extend that now to the wife who is one with you. Nourish her and cherish her. Nourish means to, to nurture, to develop, to lift up. And cherish means to keep warm, to keep warm, to comfort. I was reading a commentary by a professor, former professor at Westminster Seminary, California. I think he's an OPC pastor. I think he's been in this pulpit. But he's done a bunch of work on the, on the setting uh, of the Apostle Paul's day and some interesting facts about men and women in that day. Women, on average, in the Apostles' Day, lived to about 
35 years old, to the mid-30s. And he writes that very often ancient women died young amid serious health issues, particularly due to iron deficiency in their diet, anemia, and through women's bodies and pregnancies, it was, he says, uh, made uh, women, ancient women, susceptible to spontaneous abortion, to diseases such as pneumonia, bronchitis, bronchitis, emphysema, and death during or shortly after childbirth. And then he says this a little bit later, hence Paul exhorts husbands to love in a self-sacrificial manner their brides who were often laid up in bed one week or longer every month from anemia and other common health problems in antiquity or with pregnancy complications. One week a month. If you've cared for your wife through a difficult pregnancy, that may seem like a costly sacrifice, but picture these husbands with wives so weakened. We're to be tender towards our wives, to love them as our own bodies. Today, still, And then Paul comes to a conclusion towards the end here by saying, in verse 30, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And one commentator points out how interesting this is. Paul's been speaking about the church corporately as a body, and now he talks about members. And he makes it personal, members, individuals. Why does he do that? The commentator writes, the reason must be that Paul, who, as he writes this as a prisoner, the reason must be that Paul the prisoner is deeply touched by the marvelous fact that his own life too is dear to the heart of him who is enthroned in heavenly majesty. Paul sitting in prison applies to himself, not just that Christ loved his bride, but he has loved me individually. And out of that knowledge, that love, the apostle is able to lavish love upon the church of Christ. Why do I bring that up? Because sometimes us husbands just need a firm rebuke. But sometimes, weighed down by the responsibilities, wearied by our failures, discouraged by the outcomes of what we've tried to do, husbands need to know, you're loved by Christ. And he's nourishing and cherishing you. Only, dear brothers, as we find our comfort in Christ, will we properly love our wives. In fact, we might say that our love for our wife will never rise higher, never go deeper than our knowledge of Christ's love for us. So know yourself to be loved by Christ and then look upon your wife that way. She's one of Jesus's. She's a member of his body. He loved her. And he gave his life for her. Christ has entrusted to me his sister. The Father in heaven has entrusted to me his daughter. I have in my home a princess, one who is destined to reign eternally with the Lord Jesus. So let me treat her in terms of her radiance. She is the Lord's.
Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how we thank you for your goodness and grace to us. And Lord, we pray that your word will help our marriages, that your word bless the girls and young ladies, that they might choose a man who will be one who loves them. We pray, Lord, that where we fail in our marriages, you will give us repentance. We pray, Lord, that we have eyes that are wide open to the reality that life hastens on, and you eventually call husbands and wives to bid farewell. And may we, Lord, upon that moment be able to say, that we loved one another after the pattern of the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.